The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 8th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll be joined from inside the NBA bubble by The Washington Post's Ben Golliver. He'll talk with us about the cratering of the top-seeded Milwaukee Bucks and other happenings from the pro basketball playoffs. Tennis player Noah Rubin will also be here to talk about life in the U.S. Open bubble and top seed Novak Djokovic's disqualification from the tournament after he hit a lines person with a ball. Finally, we'll speak with Dom Cosentino of The Score about what to expect from the NFL this season. And yes, the NFL is starting this week on Thursday, actually. I am the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joel Anderson, our friend and colleague, is off this week. But with me from his home office in D.C. as well, Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. So we're going to talk about this in our bonus segment, First Play Plus members, coming up. But we were just talking off the air that this might have been the busiest sports week ever. I mean, at least since we've been doing the show, we're actually trying to think of what sports are not happening now and could not think of any. No. And it's the combination of things that should have been happening now that are happening, even though we expected them not to be happening. And then the things that were not supposed to be happening now because they should have been happening earlier in the year that are happening now. So yeah, it's a crazy confluence of too much going on. We could have done two other shows with stuff we didn't talk about, but we will discuss how we've been consuming this busy time on the sports calendar in our bonus segment. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday in Orlando, the top-seeded Milwaukee Bucks beat the Miami Heat in overtime in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals. That was a good thing for Milwaukee, certainly. But the overall basketball picture for the Bucs, it's still pretty grim. They're down 3-1 in the series. League MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo missed most of that game with an ankle injury. It's at least possible that Giannis won't ever play for the Bucs again. It's possible his next NBA game will be for their opponent, uh, the Miami Heat. Uh, joining us now from the NBA bubble is Ben Golliver. Ben writes about the NBA for the Washington Post. He podcasts about the NBA on the show's Open Floor and my personal favorite, Greatest of All Talk. He's also writing a book called Bubble Ball. It'll be out in May 2021 if we as a species make it that far. Ben, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. And thank you for all of those plugs. You nailed every single one. I appreciate it. No problem, sir. All right. John Hollinger wrote a piece for The Athletic about how the Bucks demise in these playoffs is a complicated and nuanced story. Um, But we're all very busy people here, Ben. We don't have the patience for French words like nuance. Uh, Explain to me, I'm an idiot who is short on time, 
Why have the Bucs gone from a historically great regular season team to a playoff flop? There's a bunch of things going on. I think, first of all, they just never looked like the same team here in the bubble than they did during the regular season. Now, during the regular season, it was a juggernaut team. They were heading for uh, records, the top seed, home court advantage all the way through the playoffs. But once they got here, the vibe was just not quite the same. And and we heard from some of their players early on, you know, should we even be playing? Is this a, a distraction from the social justice movement? Uh, George Hill was sort of loud and vocal on that issue. They had a couple players test positive for the coronavirus, which delayed their arrivals down to Florida. And I think that shook up uh, you know, their uh, their chemistry, their cohesion. And I think you also, with their MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he had a brand new newborn baby at home who he was separated with for, for more than a month. I imagine that would be a factor. As soon as the Bucks were allowed to bring family members here, uh, his girlfriend and baby were sitting courtside immediately, uh, you know, the first day they were allowed. So I wonder if um, if that weighed on their emotions as well. But once they got on the court here, they've, they've had a losing record. Their offense has not looked as smooth as it did during the regular season. Obviously, that starts with Giannis himself. Um, he struggled in the playoffs uh, to be as consistent and, and dominant as he was during the regular season. And then I think there's been real questions about their defense. Their entire strategy um, on defense is predicated around protecting the paint and giving up three-point shots. The math pencils out on that for them during the regular season. They had the number one defense before the shutdown. But here in the neutral site where everyone's shooting the ball well, where offenses are going crazy, where um, all sorts of role players are having uh, their moments in the sun, the math has kind of changed and they've been outshot and, and kind of uh, you know outscored in, in games both during the, the restart regular season and here during the playoffs against the Miami Heat as well. So I think that they've been slow to adapt. They've been slow to you know bring their team together and they just haven't looked right. Uh, I think there's no way if you had only seen the Bucks play down here at Disney World, you would have ever guessed they were the overall number one seed. Is that a failure of Mike Budenholzer, the head coach, to make adjustments that he needed to make in this weird environment? Or is it some combination of other teams figuring out the Bucks' weaknesses and, and exploiting them in this weird environment? I definitely put a lot on his shoulders. You know, Patrick Beverly had that famous quote, the bubble is what you make it. And you could even see that with media members. Like, I feel at home. I'm ready for another bubble next season. And that makes me probably a weirdo, but I think I've settled in pretty well here and you kind of make the most of it. I know some of my colleagues were like dying to get out of here as quickly as possible, counting down the days and, and looking towards their freedom. Yeah, it's a real mental challenge. It's It throws your entire life upside down. You're cut off from loved ones and all that stuff. And I think ultimately it's the coach's responsibility to bring their teams together when they got down here, let them know what was sort of what the task at hand was, find ways to keep them happy and motivated and just sort of rebuild things after a long shutdown. I'm not sure Milwaukee ever did that. Um, their vibe just hasn't been the same kind of goofy, happy vibe they had during the regular season at all. And in fact, you could you could see how you know rot the uh, the emotions got when they decided to walk out um, from their game against the Orlando Magic uh, to protest uh, the social justice issues. You could even tell from their quotes afterwards how sort of heartbroken they were. And so I think to a certain degree, coming into that Miami series, they just weren't ready emotionally, psychologically, and then strategically as well uh, for that series. I think they were just really shaken up. Uh, and you can't put that on Budenholzer necessarily, but I think overall, 
you know, the, the buy-in factor you certainly can attribute to him. And then within this series specifically, there's a lot of things you can nitpick. I mean, the minutes management, not playing his superstar level players, Giannis and Chris Middleton, more than 35 or 36 minutes in must-win games, not adjusting his defense and his lineups once it became clear that the other teams were shooting the ball very well and, uh, you know, really just bombing from outside. You know, he, he doesn't really change things up. He just kind of lets that happen. In game one, Jimmy Butler is going absolutely crazy. He never thinks to change up his defensive matchups there. He just lets it happen. And, and now they're in an 0-1 hole. I mean, there's a lot of different things you could say. You know, Boonholzer just, you know, being a little bit slow on the draw and, and being more reactive rather than proactive. And you can contrast it to Eric Spolstra and Brad Stevens, who I both I think both had their teams down here with sort of a business trip mentality. We're pulling things together. Uh, both those teams, the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat, have played very well here in the bubble. They've looked very steady. They've looked stable. And uh, you know, I think ultimately, like that, that matters, and and that's why Coach Bud's going to have a lot to answer for this offseason. So I guess there's always the question of how much any of this stuff matters, even in a in a normal season, but in the context of the NBA, obviously the entire purpose of it is to win a championship. But do you have a sense being in the bubble if, and maybe it's just hard to say, like maybe the, this just all seems like ex post facto, like, and you're drawing conclusions based on the results, but are you able to sense whether there are certain teams that are looking at this as like, this is just like any other postseason, any other playoffs, like it's incredibly massively important for us to win. And are there other teams that are like, this is just a weird, unusual season. And if we don't, you know, when it's not like a normal year and we can't, we're not going to be all broken up about it. Uh, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because we're in the the final eight round basically. And I've noticed kind of a, a change in tone, just a change in uh, every demeanor around the entire bubble experience. When they first brought the 22 teams down here, there was a lot of teams and players who knew they had no shot whatsoever to win, right? So you hear the reports about guys trying to order the the Postmates delivery to the bubble and getting in trouble for that. And, you know, just, you know, all the other hijinks that was going on early on. And then I think there was a long period where it was all about the political activism, where guys were using every single uh, interview, pregame, postgame, whatever it might be to sort of get a message out. And here this week, now that we're down to the eight teams, it's been really strictly business. I mean, if you go back and, and watch a lot of the postgame press conferences, there's very little mention of any of the, uh, whether it's Breonna Taylor or Jacob Blake or any of those kinds of issues. That almost has gone to the back burner or completely off the, uh, off the stove. And it's all been basketball. So I do think we have a really locked in basketball environment right now. The teams that are here sort of have that mentality of like, look, we've put in two months down in Disney World, we might as well get whatever we can out of this. And uh, that's sort of what you would expect. Now, is there going to be an asterisk? Are people going to treat this one differently? I mean, that's obviously out of their um, their control. But the teams who are down here, I do think, are are really focused on, on trying to see this thing through the finish line. And you can see that with uh, just the intensity of the defensive effort. I mean, earlier in the playoffs, even the first round or back to the seeding games, I mean, we were consistently seeing just crazy high scoring totals, lots and lots of shootouts. Right. And I think you've seen a, you know, a little bit more um, you know, back and forth two-way play here over the last week or so. The Clippers-Nuggets series has been absolutely compelling, um, and I think you're seeing some of the things that you're explaining here, Ben, two teams that are locked in, two teams that are playing defense, and the big example of that was from Monday night's game where Kawhi Leonard stuck his middle finger up in front of the rim and blocked Jamal Murray from dunking, though it's not clear to me that Jamal Murray had the right elevation and angle to <laughs> dunk there, so... 
I think we're giving Kawhi a little bit more, but damn, that was an incredible block. I mean, that series has been fascinating because it felt like, well, the Clippers have are constructed to win this, and we're now seeing that this Nuggets team, led by Jokic, this huge guy, is putting up a real fight, and it's creating some tension. You're seeing some criticism after the games from players. It does feel more like a, a real sort of intense series where both teams have things to say about the other. Yeah, let's credit the Clippers uh, fan section too, because they brought a lot of people down, the wives and girlfriends and the children, and they're very loud. They're probably the oh, loudest really? of the of the fan sections in the building. And so a lot of these playoff games, they've been played with intensity on the court, but just this weird flatness, you know, st- sterility off the court. I mean, like, for example, this Toronto-Boston game five, I mean, that's like a do or die pivotal game five. You know, one team's going on to the conference finals, one team's probably going home after that. And Boston comes out with this incredible performance. You'd imagine if that happened, you know, in TD Garden, just the entire place would be rocking. It'd be so loud. Or if it had happened on the road in Toronto, it would just be, you know, this uh, really pained home crowd. And they're trying to wrap their minds around the end of a season. And here it's happening in this empty gym. And and, uh, there's almost no response. And and the writers are left to kind of craft all the storylines, the narratives on top of this game, right? But in that uh, Clippers-Nuggets series, yeah, the the Clippers uh, fan section is just very loud. The the Clippers play to them a lot, which is nice. They look over and kind of salute them, which which adds an interesting element that's new here. Uh, but the intensity is up. It's funny, though, because the Clippers, to me, they're the deepest and most talented team, and they are actually the team that has taken the longest to get serious about this entire environment. It's like they could turn it on for quarters. They could turn it on for a six-minute stretch. They might fall behind by 10 or 15 points and then find a way to dig out of it uh, just because they know they're the best. I think they have that sort of swagger. Even though they haven't won a title together, they just kind of feel like they're the kings on the block. And we saw that um, you know against Dallas, where they were digging, digging out and making some comebacks, I think we saw that as well against Denver in game three, where they feel like they can flip the switch. I think their behavior and their approach is actually starting to drive Doc Rivers a little bit crazy. Like he just wishes they would come out in, in six gear and and put some of these teams away earlier. But uh, you know, their ceiling is very high as a team. You know, it starts with Kawhi Leonard, not just the defense, but the the shot making late in games and his ability to get to his spots. Paul George, who took a lot of criticism earlier in the playoffs, has stepped up and is really in a nice scoring group. Uh, he, he's feeling well. And then you are starting to get their uh, the trash talk element, which the Clippers thrive on. They want to be the bad guys. They want to be uh, the team, the most hated. That's sort of their goal. And and Patrick Beverly was just sort of needling uh, Nikola Jokic last night in his post game press conference, basically saying that he just flails and he's trying to uh, sell calls to the official. And he brought Luka Doncic into it, saying that basically they're both just you know floppers essentially. And uh, Patrick Beverly had a, an amazing ability to anger multiple fan bases after a game which. <laughs> they won. I mean, not every player can do that, but he's got a unique knack for it. I want to talk for a second about Lakers Rockets because I'm obsessed with two players in this series, uh, both on the Rockets, PJ Tucker and Russell Westbrook. First of all, PJ Tucker is the best player in the NBA. Just we can we can stipulate that. Um, second, second of all, the worst thing that happened to the Lakers in game two was when Westbrook got his fifth foul and had to leave the game. Westbrook was so bad in that game. And as soon as he left the floor, the Rockets like unlocked the Rockets, the Rockets offense, everything was flowing smoothly. And then he like gets gets back on the court and everything just completely falls apart for them again. Like the Russell Westbrook experience never disappoints over years and years, like how up and down he is, his ability to kind of take over a game in both good and terrible ways 
Am I correct to be compelled by these two players on the Rockets, Ben? I'm with you on both counts. So first of all, with Tucker, he's the kind of guy who should have his jersey retired and a statue out front of the stadium for Houston. Like I think when they look back on this era, obviously the fans, you know, like and respect Harden. But I feel like the one player who's actually beloved on this Rockets team uh, by Rockets fans would be P.J. Tucker, and rightfully so. And it's also funny because I think they're one of the most disliked teams around the league. People don't like their playing style. Uh, you know, they get down on Harden. Is he a choker? Is Westbrook out of control? You know, Dan Tony doesn't care about defense, like all those anti-Rockets tropes. But amazingly, P.J. Tucker, has the, he's the exception to every criticism. Everyone's like always gives him a pass. He's like basketball Twitter's Hall of Fame member. You know what I mean? The good question would be, who's the second most liked player on the Rockets? Oh, man. Uh, I think I it's Eric Gordon, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'm not sure they have two, to be honest. I think it might just be <laughs> P.J. Tucker and, and the rest. But on the Westbrook point, I've had this maxim and I, you know, people make fun of me for using it. But I say, you know, the, the best point guards and best players, they uh, they don't play with purpose. They play with a purpose. In other words, they're not just uh, playing hard. They're playing smart. They're seeing the entire chessboard. Um, they have an idea of what they want to do when they're on the court. And game two, Westbrook had absolutely no idea what he wanted to do. As he put it after the game, he was just out there running around. I think it perfectly encapsulated the idea behind my maxim. Uh, you know, just being, you know, just, you know, running around at full speed, trying to make an impact, but really having no rhyme or reason to what you're doing can be incredibly damaging. I was trying to rack my brains. I don't know if you guys have, have played this hypothetical game. Can you remember a more damaging performance by an NBA MVP in a playoff game than Westbrook in that game? I can't remember it. I thought he was actually the Lakers MVP because during that stretch when he had five fouls, they didn't take him out immediately. And so LeBron like hunted him like three or four or five possessions in a row, just getting basket after basket after basket. I mean, the entire game turned there. They squandered all of Houston's momentum, not to mention the seven turnovers, many of which led directly to Lakers points. I mean, I think you could have a real conversation. Who was the Lakers MVP in that game? LeBron, Anthony Davis, or Russell Westbrook. I mean, it was like on that level of, of impact, um, you know, he single-handedly swung the game. So he'll need to bounce back in the rest of this series. But I think if I was a Rockets fan, I would have already been very dubious of the Westbrook trade and the overall impact on my uh, organization. I would have just preferred the stability of a Chris Paul and to try to keep their personalities aligned between him and James Harden again. Uh, you watch how that things played out uh, in that game too. You know, it would have made me turn the television off, frankly. Ben, you mentioned earlier that you're kind of a weirdo for the fact that you like being down in the bubble. Watching on TV, I don't feel like we really have a sense of how strange these games must be. What are some of the things that being there courtside or wherever they have you sitting will stick with you and that you are eager to write about in bubble ball? Well, probably the number one thing is when the guys run out onto the court, they have they now pump in the fake crowd noise. And so there'll there will be like less than a hundred people actually in the building and the guys will run out on the court and wave to the crowd as if it's like a crowd of twenty thousand people and it's just sort of like this <laughs> this fake symbol to like I don't know if it's for the benefit of the television cameras or if they're just doing it as a joke. I mean, it started as a joke, but guys have continued to do it. Um so that's always kind of underscored things. I'll remember a lot of the trash talk last night, for example, um, or, or even just talk between teammates. Serge Ibaka was so frustrated at Kyle Lowry for getting a technical foul. They were down, I think, 24 points at the time, trying desperately to make a comeback. And Ibaka just, you know, shouts out, come on, man, we're losing. And he points up to the scoreboard and, uh, you know, Lowry is kind of chasing. He's like, OK, I'm done. I'm done arguing with the officials. And you just get this um, very intimate 
look or glance at you know team dynamics or you know player referee interactions um, in ways that you would you never see otherwise. One of my favorite moments from the entire bubble actually involved Chris Paul, and everyone knows he's always working the officials. And there was a moment where uh, he had tried to complain and argue his um, opinion to an official that he hadn't fouled LeBron James, and the officials just really weren't listening to him. So he came all the way down the court and sought out Monty McCutcheon, who is like sort of the czar of the NBA referees, and he's sitting courtside right in front of the media section at almost every game. And so essentially what Chris Paul did was he took his complaints to the manager, right? You know, he asked to uh, to, to go up the chain of command, and he's engaged in this long back and forth with Monty McCutcheon about was it a foul? Did what did Monty see? Wasn't uh, you know Chris Paul right to be aggrieved? And um, you know ultimately it got so uh, extended of a conversation. He came back after halftime to continue it, and he wanted to approach Monty McCutcheon, um, you know, by the bench and, and sort of continue this. And at that point, Monty had to remind him, like, look because of our COVID guidelines, I can't come onto the court and you can't come over here to this seat. So we need to, we can continue talking. You can continue to make your appeal to the manager here, but we have to stay socially distant at least 10 feet apart. And so again, it was just the levels of all the weirdness where the media is actually able to hear this conversation going on. Um, we have these guidelines that say you can go in this uh, area, you can't go in this area and just everything else on top of it. No fan noise to obstruct uh, all of it. It's just one of those situations where this will never happen again in a non-bubble environment. And, uh, you know, it, you just see people, I think, distilled down to their true essence in the bubble. I think there's really no hiding here. Uh, you are who you are. And if you're Monty McCutcheon and you, you've got an open ear to player complaints and you're just a nice guy and you want to talk things out, that's how you're who you're going to be in the bubble. If you're Chris Paul and every single time a foul is called on you, you feel like you're being wronged. Well, that's who you're going to be in the bubble too. Are they not allowed to show the friends and family section. Stefan, have you seen it on TV? No. I mean, I've been wondering when I hear fan noise, whether it's piped in or whether it's whoever is sitting in the stands. And my assumption has been that it's team personnel. But why wouldn't they show the like family members, Ben? So most of the noise you're hearing on television will be piped in. Um, there is a lot of piped in music, piped in right. uh, sound effect, and they actually have like customized music for each arena sure. and customized sound effects from your home arenas to try to right, make right, right. it so feel you like have home. A home team advantage. Yeah, home court advantage. Right. Right. And all the players laugh at that. They all say it doesn't make a difference. I have no idea if it does, but it, they've ramped up the audio. It's, it's actually kind of annoying. I wish they would turn it down a little bit in the uh, the arena. But every once in a while, I've heard from people watching at home that they will cut to the crowd section, just kind of tight shots of fans. I think part of the reason why they don't do it more often is because it's still weird because we're still only talking about like 20 or 25 people. And I think there's some teams, frankly, I don't even know how many people they brought, maybe five, you know, it's, there's been some games with the Rockets where you'll see Daryl Morey standing up and cheering for, you know, dunks and three pointers. And you look around and there's nobody else in his section and you kind of feel bad for the guy. It's like, come on, you know, get him some, uh, some support on this, uh, in, in the cheerleading department. But, uh, yeah, I think they're trying to keep all the action on that court as much as possible. They really tried to create a stage, a television stage with the lighting, with the microphones that they've got picking up the sneaker squeaks and all that stuff to sort of, uh, I guess, compensate for the other limitations they have because these are very basic gyms. I mean, they would function very well as like a high school gym, right? Uh, at a, a mid-sized high school. I mean, there's going to be a lot of schools around the country that have sort of a more impressive like facility here than what the NBA is working with. Ben Golliver writes for the Washington Post. His podcasts are Open Floor and Greatest of All Talk. The book, which you can pre-order despite the fact that it doesn't exist. It's called Bubble Ball. Ben, 
Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday at the U.S. Open, top-seeded Novak Djokovic was behind in the first set to Pablo Carreño Busta when he smacked a ball into a lines person's neck. Djokovic didn't hit the lines person on purpose, but the rules are clear. If you hit an official with a ball or your racket or anything else, you can get kicked out of the tournament. And after a short debate, Djokovic got defaulted. It was a bizarre episode and what's been a bizarre tournament, one being held without fans and with quarantine rules that have been applied, shall we say, inconsistently. Noah Rubin was in the U.S. Open bubble. He played doubles, losing in the first round with his partner Ernesto Escobedo. He's also got a podcast of his own. It's called Behind the Racket. And it's part of a larger project to reveal what it's like to try to make it as a pro tennis player, the injuries, mental health struggles, and the battle to make a living. Noah, thanks so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. So, Noah, Novak is the unquestioned best player on the men's tour. He hadn't lost all year. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal not playing in New York. He was an enormous favorite to win his 18th Grand Slam. And then he hits a lines person with a ball, which I don't think any of us had on our 2020 bingo card. Um, what, did, what did you think when you saw that or when you heard about it? And what did you make of the decision to disqualify him from the U.S. Open? Uh, you know, throughout this time, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, they can, they can mess up the rules on everything else. But if anything touches a lines person even a ball boy at times, there's no question. I mean, I've been a part of two challenger tournaments actually where I've seen a racket hit off of something else come down onto a lines person going actually minus miles per hour and they have to get kicked out. <laughs> that was Darian and my, King in Charlottesville. I actually know what you're talking about. Darren King in Charlottesville right there. And then my <laughs> limited experience uh, commentating a match was last year in Charlottesville again. And Michael Moe, you know, went to throw his racket hit a lines person and that's it. So it, it's it's so easy. I mean, as soon as he hit the ball, as soon as he saw where it landed, he knew what was going to happen. So actually, as somebody who's seen this happen to lower ranked players, is it actually kind of a good thing in your mind that when it happened with the top player, there weren't different rules that they just applied it consistently? Yeah, I mean, we've seen this uh, done before. Uh, I've seen Albandi and, you know, kick the side and then the wood breaks and it hits the lines. But I mean, we've seen it done. This is the only rule that they stick to no matter what happens, you know, no matter who the player is, you can't get around it. And especially this one. I mean, this one actually looked pretty bad. I mean, this is, you know, out of anger, a ball hit right to the neck. Can't feel good. Um, so this is one of those that you don't really look at the video and you're like, oh, you know, might have been overly reacting to that situation. This this looked pretty bad. And the an instant reaction was pretty much unanimous on ESPN that the rule was implemented correctly. Brad Gilbert, though, did see the need to point out that Djokovic didn't hit the ball overhand. He didn't hit it that hard, he said. He was flicking the ball in anger. And I just want to be <laughs> clear here. When a professional tennis player decides to flick a ball it's going a lot faster than 
I would flick a ball the way that Djokovic did. That thing was cruising, and clearly the woman was in agony. No, we've we've seen it done before where players are like kind of upset, but they just kind of, I'll use that term, flick a ball, and it's fine. You know, it's it almost on the arrival comes down and hits you, and everybody's fine, does it? You don't even feel a thing. This was a line drive, you know, that that ball wasn't really had the trajectory of just going straight. So you're looking at it and regardless of the intentions, um, (laughs) ironic that there are no fans and still managed to hit somebody. But it's this is, you know, the situation. And I guess the only person to beat Djokovic in 2020 had to be Djokovic. (laughs) What was the experience like for you being in the bubble? I want to get into um, the quarantine rules and how those kind of affected you. But before we get into the specifics of that, just you you show up at the tennis center, you're there for a, a while. And like, what is it like just being on the grounds? And, you know, as somebody who's played in the US Open before, like, how do you compare this experience to past years? I mean, first I have to say how disappointed I am that my house is nine minutes away from the tournament hotel. So that that's <laughs> tough. <laughs> and, and I can't get out to, you know, get the few things that I left in my place and, and forgot. But um, yeah, I mean, the first few days are actually amazing. A dream come true. Uh, you know, for me, I've had so much pressure surrounding, you know, the week or two and even the week before the Open, you know, getting texts from my uh, third grade teacher saying, hey, you have any extra tickets? I was like, I don't even have enough for my parents. So not dealing with that this year was actually um, pretty incredible. For people who don't know, you've been billed for a long time as like the best player out of New York since John McEnroe. This is my hometown, you know, this, yeah. and, and I love playing in front of people, just not people I know, uh, you know, <laughs> when it's, you know, I've, I've, when I played Fed and Rod Laver, that's 15,000 people I've never met. But it's a little different when I there's a thousand people I know every one of them and you know they they aren't huge tennis fans so if I lose a match against like somebody who's sixty in the world it's like ah no you should have had that one like why'd you lose <laughs> and I'm like this isn't high school tennis so it's uh you know to not deal with that outside <laughs> pressure was was actually really refreshing and just to walk the grounds and not get the good old uh, New York shoulder into the chest by accident or whatever <laughs> else comes our way. Um, it was nice. But then, you know, this is not US Open's fault. It got boring. You know, I was there for 10 days. There's really not much to do. There's only so many times you could play mini golf. And, you know, I think they did what they could at times. But it, at Thursday, you, you only had about 500 people spread out amongst all the practice courts, all the match courts and the grounds. There's, you can only, when you look around, you see 40 people around you. You were not pleased with how the uh, tournament handled the protocols for players being removed after testing positive for the coronavirus. A French player was kicked out. He had been around uh, several other French players and you were, explain what happened. You were on like the waiting list, right? To get into the singles draw. What happened and and what didn't sit right with you, Noah? Yeah, I'll backpedal for a quick second. I mean, I praise them for how much work they put into creating this bubble. I mean, it was a massive undertaking. Sure. With that being said, the quote that we heard over and over and Stacey Allister, tournament director said, we are preparing for positive tests as they should. I mean, this is, you're putting a lot of people from around the world in the same place. So here we are, Benoit Paire, test positive. Automatically gets kicked out, great. In my head, I'm like, I know people have spent, you know, immense time with him in close quarters. Then I was hearing rumors that there's video of close quarters without masks. And so here I am thinking that I have a pretty good opportunity to get in. And this is because 
in normal years, there would be qualifying and alternates, but there is no qualifying this year. And the alternates can't be from outside the bubble. And you have to be inside the bubble. And the only way to be in, you have to be in the tournament. And the only way to be in the tournament without playing singles is to be in the doubles draw. So they take the highest ranked singles guys from the doubles draw. So here I am in pretty good contention. My partner and I both in pretty good contention to get in through the contact tracing and knowing what would happen. But then USA came out and said, working with the New York State Department of Health, we came up that we're going to have a bubble within a bubble. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, interesting maneuver here. And I mean, long story short, it just seemed like they were paving their own path for success, that they were going to make this work, that there were top players that came in close contact that weren't worth the risk of pulling out, that possibly, you know, losing those players would risk the tournament. And none of that sat, sat well with me. I mean, I, I, here I am saying, you know, I'm from New York. I'm only, I know what the rules are. COVID's not new to us. We know that you could test eight times a day and the results might not prove positive until 10 days later, 12 days later. So yeah, I guess they, they tried to maneuver around. You can't be in any common areas, but they're still on the grounds. They're still practicing. They're still going to their matches. We're still in contact. And it seemed just like a tremendous disservice to everybody that put the tournament on, all the workers that are working so hard, all the players that are here doing you know, the right thing. And this is nothing against the players that came in close contact but you pay the price, you know, you pay the price of taking the risk of being next to somebody without a mask and all this. So, you know, again, the players weren't told this was going to happen. And then obviously we saw three days ago what took place. So we had Manorino, his match was delayed about two and a half hours. Um, it seemed like Nassau County either went back on the word or were confused about the original. Again, not a lot of communication was had with the players, so I can only guess from the knowledge I know and, and the information I know. So, you know, then we had uh, Maldanovic got pulled out with her partner, who was a top top doubles team, and Manorino, if he beat Alexander Zverev, would have been pulled out. So long story short, it just seemed like they paved their own path and made sure that no matter what happened, these players were going to play. Yeah, so the rules were inconsistently applied. I mean, as you mentioned, they allowed Manorino after this like weird and long delay to actually play his match. And then they didn't. He was one of the French players that were in contact with uh, Benoit Pair, right? Yes. And and to go back again, the tournament before, which was Cincinnati and usually played in Cincinnati, was played at the US Open this year. Uh, there was a physio that got tested positive. And then his two players who came in close contact were immediately pulled out, Guido Pella and Hugo Delian. So there you go. You have two players that lost the opportunity to play in Cincinnati. It's a lot of money and almost lost the opportunity to play in the U.S. Open. So another inconsistent move by the USTA to say, hey, I guess we have to lay down the lawn here, but these seem like top players. So maybe we go or the U.S. Open's too big to make this judgment call. And I'm just like, I mean, think a little bit more clear than that. Think about the larger picture. Why are we giving like this is this wasn't, you know, stopping the US Open from going on. We would still be in the same position we are today. But why put sports on a higher pedestal than we are already? Make sure those players quarantine, make sure they're healthy and make sure we can move on from this. Well, this is something that we thought would happen when all these bubbles were created, whether it's the NBA or the NHL or any other sports league. And it seems like you know, based on what we've heard and read, that the bubbles have been extremely successful and that this was one of the first cases where it was really put to the test of whether 
when there's a breach and when there's a positive test, are you going to follow the protocols? And, you know, you're obviously self-interested here. Like it would have been a really big, would have been a really big payday motives. for you um, to make it into the, yeah. to the singles draw. It's like, you know, 50,000 or $60,000 or something like that. So you have a, you know, it's a, a big thing in your career. It's a big financial stake. And so. And a big opportunity. And a big opportunity. But I, I think you're right. <laughs> despite all of that, all of that to note that, you know, it's, it's really hard when you're put and forced to make a tough decision like this, um, to do what you've said you're going to do from the beginning and the U S open, um, the U S TA, whoever, they didn't pass the test. Um, but it's, it's a tough thing. No, it's not easy. It's kind of been the icing on the cake. I mean, during the pandemic and, and what we've been dealing with, Again, it's just the cherry on top of of making quote unquote tough decisions and not following through. It seems to be kind of their MO at this point, you know, between the seven entities that are tennis, um, WTA, ATP, ITF, and the four Grand Slams. So it's disappointing and it's just proving that it's time for change, time for a little bit of uh, evolution of sorts. So you're involved in this movement to create a new players association, Djokovic's leading that along with Vashek Pospisil. I guess, how involved are you with it? Um, and can you explain to folks what this new Players Association is and why, given all of the different alphabet soup that's involved with tennis, why the need to start this, this new organization? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, early in the pandemic, we thought that this would be the perfect time to enable change. You know, I started, you know, WhatsApp group text with 150 tennis players just to pick their brains and, and speaking to the outside. And, you know, I found that there's, <laughs> you know, if anything, we just need unity. You know, if we're going to gain what, you know, is right for the players, because, you know, just on a short term, um, players only get 14% prize money at the Grand Slams, seven and seven between the men and the woman. Um, so that's, you know, right there, those numbers are very low compared to other sports. So, I mean, we've always, I mean, between communication and, and safety, um, I feel like our needs are, are put last and there's a lack, there's almost this hiding effect where, you know, we're the last ones to know about everything. They're like, why did you find out from Twitter? I was like, I know when you guys know, and that's embarrassing. So during this time, we were pushing in different directions, um, and there were rumors that Novak and Vashik were working on something larger. Um, and people know that I've had my differences with Novak in the past. I've spoken outwardly pretty aggressively about him during the Adria tour incidences and and you know, some of the things he was involved in. That's the tour he put on in Europe that was kind of a disaster with people testing positive <laughs> for coronavirus. And it was, he did not perform admirably in that circumstance. No, no, no masks, you know, people hugging, players hugging and jumping around from country to country, kind of spreading. And they, quote unquote, didn't know the situation at the time when we were five months into the pandemic. But, um, you know, what I will say about this PTPA is... Uh, it's scaring the ATP. It's scaring them. I mean, throughout the full quarantine, we did not receive one full text message updating us, did not receive one full email from the ATP or any of the entities. Within this 45-minute meeting, 20 minutes in, everybody looked at their phone and we literally had this like five-paragraph essay, MLA format, citing sources of, <laughs> hey guys, watch out. 
The MLA format part was really important, and I'm sure made a huge impression <laughs> on you guys. Yeah. For those who aren't sort of familiar with the structure of professional tennis, I think it might be important to sort of get into that a little bit to explain why a player-run body might be necessary when, you know, the ATP stands for Association of Tennis Professionals. So the assumption to a fan of the game might be that, oh, it's player-run. That's not the case. So what are you trying to remedy here? Yeah, we we have very little power. Again, you know, the seven entities are the ones that control everything. And amongst themselves, they don't even work together. You know, we've seen that Roland Garros months before just said, hey, we're moving to September. We'll take that slot over there. Not really talking to anybody else. So, you know, they can fight amongst themselves, but the people that actually lose in the long run are the players. You know, we don't have the safety net. We don't have the revenue that we deserve to be getting from these tournaments, like a US Open that's bringing in X number of dollars. I mean, more, I believe more than the Yankees and Mets making a, a full season at times, I've heard this. But uh, so, you know, we are finding ourselves getting the short end of the stick and that's where something like this comes into play. At the beginning of the year, we signed something that enabled us to play the first event of the year, which is usually Australian Open. And the ATP, they name us independent contractors. They're telling us that, hey, you know, you guys are on your own, basically. Um, this is what's happening. And they say we can't boycott. They say we can't protest. We can't do anything. That's why we signed to play these tournaments. So there's really nobody to defend us. We're on our own. You know, they separate us from one another. And, you know, we don't have um, power in numbers at all. We don't have these, the strength that we need. So that's where kind of this organization comes in. And again, do I trust Djokovic to possibly take me to that holy land? I don't know. But again, we got a text 20 minutes in. Everybody there got a text from the ATP saying, be careful. This is not the play you want to be doing. So if it could scare them this much, it might be worth my time. And yet Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal are not signed on to this. Do you understand? Can you explain what the the uh, the differences here well, might be? And let me also add that Andy Murray has said he's skeptical because women players aren't involved in the first you know, photo of everybody who's signed on to the PTPA went out and it's just all men standing on a court, which is not necessarily a great look, Noah. No, not not the best look at all. Um, you know, the timing is not the best. The look is not the best. There's a lot of things that people are going to nitpick, and I totally agree. Uh, they are trying to get women involved. You you have to just look. So the only thing I'll defend Novak on, which I never will usually, is he tried to do this three years ago. Three people basically defended him. So at this point, again, they don't really have bylaws written. It was just who do we have to support us if we can move forward on this? So it was kind of like a prelim process. Obviously, they're pushing it forward. Like they have all the things lined up in a row and it's perfect. It's not. But I will say that they are, you know, strength is in numbers. So getting women involved would, you know, actually behoove us. And we would push forward with them. It just, it was just like, how many people do we have in the men's tour? Can we get that done? We'll speak to the women after the open. We'll see how many we can get done. I think that's what they intended. Um, but there's never a great time for this. And there's always something going to be wrong. Again, for me, it's just, can we scare the ATP and all the entities into saying, wait, will we lose these players? Um, yes, Federer and Nadal did not sign on. They usually are not on board with things like this. I mean, for Novak, it seems like this is his way of, of making, you know, because he's not a fan favorite. You know, he, he knows he's not a fan favorite in any way. He knows that regardless of being the greatest of all time, he may not be named the greatest of all time. So there's a lot of, you know, chips on the shoulder. He says, well, maybe I can make an impact in the sport in another way. I'm hoping his selfish needs actually lead to positive change. 
So I'm going to stump for behind the racket here for a minute. It's yes. something that you started on Instagram and it's really amazing um, portraits of players like yourself, some top ranked players, a lot of folks that are lesser known to the average sports fan talking very openly about what it's like to struggle on the tennis tour, struggle with mental health, struggle with not thinking you're good enough. It's something that you've battled with yourself. So can you just kind of explain where you were, like what was the moment in your career when you were kind of low and and decided that you wanted to share that and also wanted to have a venue for other players like yourself to share their stories? Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty smooth ride throughout my junior career, but getting into pros, it was a roller coaster. You know, I was going up and down the rankings from injuries and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, I got to my career high of 125 in the world and I was still not happy. You know, I felt like not enough change. The, you know, the, the money I was, the financial gain wasn't there. The happiness wasn't there. And I was like, I'm 120 in the world of what I do. One, I feel like I should be a millionaire. <laughs> That's first of all. Second of all, I feel like it should be a much smoother process than it is. And, you know, looking, you know, through the weeds a little bit, I was like, am I the only one dealing with this depression and anxiety. And that's when I kind of, you know, spoke candidly to a lot of players. And no, I, I wasn't, you know, once I really opened my eyes, I mean, there was alcohol abuse, depression, loneliness. I mean, you name it, it was there, you know, it's a really tough snowball effect of a sport where, you know, financial loss, you can't travel with people, so you're lonely, and then you're not playing your best tennis, so you lose again, and it just continues and continues. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of downtime in tennis. And usually that leads to negative thoughts, but I was saying, how do I use this uh, to positively affect some change in my sport and the people around me? And it was early 2019, a little jet lagged after Australian Open at three o'clock in the morning and came up with this idea and just wanted to allow players to, you know, share their stories on a safe platform, giving them the right of first refusal with their story. And then, you know, they have final say and, you know, just giving them a really safe place and I had some really brave friends that didn't really know what it meant to share their story, but they were the first ones. And here we are to get, you know, today after some great media appearances, which was, you know, incredible on CBS Sunday morning. And then, you know, where we are now and working on some projects that I, you know, would never th- dreamed of working on. But in an individual sport like tennis, you have to know who these players are. You have to relate to them. And I think we lost this connection, this relation between the fan and the player. And we only know the top players. And it's it's really disappointing because, you know, even the first story I put out was Ernesto Escobedo. He has a speech impediment. He has a stutter. And he got 150 messages. I only had like 40 followers at that point. And he got like 150 messages saying, I'm a new fan of tennis because my son is a speech impediment and, you know, you're giving him the motivation to continue. So it's been an incredible journey and I'm, I'm really excited to see where it goes. You talk to most top athletes and you'll often hear that what they do, what you do is a brutal slog. It's a grind. It can be mentally harmful. It can be unrewarding. Uh, the financial rewards certainly don't match up with the expectations or the assumptions of casual fans. And those casual fans are the same people that say, cry me a river. You guys are great athletes. You're the best at what you do. How do you get, and I think that part of the value in Behind the Racket is showing people the reality of being a professional athlete. Do you feel like that message, you know, whether it's like a Sisyphean struggle or not, you know, do you feel like that's the goal here? Is it 
to give the athletes an outlet or is it to really get people to understand what it means to be a professional athlete, especially one who toils in a sport where if you're not in the top 50 in the world, you're not raking it in? Yeah, I think it's it's both. It's highlighting the aspects that we deal with that many don't know at all levels. I think it's very important. I mean, people are like, oh, it's great that I'm starting to know these players from 80 to 200 in the world and beyond. But, you know, just naming Bautista Agut, you know, he played his best tennis getting to 20 in the world with losing both his parents basically within a year and a half span. So you can look at that and then you, you say, oh, how did you not get the top 10? And I'm like, just look at what the guy has done. Look what he went through. I mean, appreciate that. You know, for me, after my CBS Sunday Morning piece came out, my parents got calls saying, I'm so sorry. You know, we thought Noah was taking care of your house and, and giving you millions of dollars left and right. We apologize for for assuming that this was the case and, you know, why you didn't give to my charity that I had. And, you know, because people didn't know. I mean, these were people that were one step you know, removed from a close circle of mine. So, and they didn't know. So how do I expect others to? So I really took it upon myself and still do, you know, to really open people's eyes to, to the realities of what we're dealing with. And, you know, it's difficult and it's heartbreaking. And people are like, sometimes your stories are really dark. And I'm like, I know, but that's the truth. I mean, this, this is what they're going through. And I do plan on, you know, throwing a few smiley faces on on the behind the racket page every once in a while. But you don't get the same heartfelt emotions and relation with another player through Instagram if it's not as heartbreaking as some of these are. So it's they're humans just like us. And, you know, like that whole idea that we're superheroes and we should get through anything and we shouldn't feel anything, you know, that has to be put to the side, you know, along with, you know, toxic masculinity and this idea that we can't share our emotions, you know, just changing that path and then breaking that stigma a little bit. It's behind the racket on Instagram. There's also a website, there's a podcast, there's a whole behind the racket <laughs> universe. Um, Noah, you're doing- there, There's merchandise. There is yes. there is merch. <laughs> Noah, good luck with it. Thanks for coming on the show and good luck on tour. Thank you for having me, guys. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, as mentioned in the top of the show, this is the busiest time in the sports calendar ever in the history of sports calendars. Stefan and I will discuss what we've been watching, how we've been watching, what we haven't been watching, what we should be watching, and what we will be watching. If you want to hear our conversation about all that, and you'll want to hear it. It'll be good. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The NFL is scheduled to start its 2020 season on Thursday. The Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs are to host the Houston Texans, a rematch of a divisional round playoff game eight months ago in which Houston led 24-0 and lost 51-31. Since then, a lot has happened. Tom Brady moved to Tampa Bay. Cam Newton replaced him in New England. The Washington team retired its racist name. There was a pandemic. 
it still seems kind of ridiculous that there will be a season. And I have a feeling opening night will just be the start of things that seem ridiculous about the NFL in 2020. Dom Cosentino writes about the NFL for The Score. Welcome back to the show, Dom. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you both again. So no bubble for the NFL. Too many people, too many logistics to put 32 teams in one or a few places. But COVID-19 results have been encouraging so far. The latest testing for the seven days that ended on Saturday showed just one positive for a player and seven for staff out of more than 44,000 tests. And with training camps over, just six players out of 2,700 are on the league's COVID-19 reserve list. I should point out, though, that NFL training camps basically are bubbles. Players are at the office like 14 hours a day. There were no preseason games, so no one went anywhere. The test will come when teams start flying and taking buses and staying in hotels and playing spittle-flecked games. Dom, does this all feel feasible to you right now? I didn't think so back when camps were opening um, in large part because of what that was right when everything was was getting bad for baseball, when they began traveling. And I think that, that like you said, that's still the wild card. But the one thing the NFL has got going for it is the, the daily testing they're doing, which the, the players union insisted on. I mean, the players union really did a good job pushing the league to get some pretty specific protocols in place. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty with how that plays out. But I, I think the daily testing, which was supposed to end September 5th, but they, they got the league to extend it into the season, you know, is a pretty good indication of how, you know, what, what the country probably could have done if, 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 you know, we had a sort of universal testing program. But you're right, though. We'll see wh- how that changes when they're out in the world. They're in airports, hotels, taxis or limos or whatever, whatever it may be, uh, getting to and from games. So no preseason games. It's a thing that I think players have been wanting for a long time, but I guess it's a way to kind of like ease fans into the season. And so because there hasn't been this like exhibition time, there haven't been, I guess, maybe as many stories coming out of training camp. It just feels even more kind of strange that the NFL season is starting this week. I was surprised. I think it was a few days ago. It's like, oh, wait, it's this Thursday that there's a game. (laughs) Does this seem like it's going to be a permanent change? Is this something that ownership will allow just like no exhibition season anymore or are are they going to try to to walk that back i'm not sure i'm ready to go that far because the coaches love the preseason they love the opportunity to you know figure out who can you know who at the bottom of the 53-man roster or what undrafted free agent you know how they look in a game and that's something they still don't know they had to make the roster cuts on saturday without any of that you know, game knowledge. It's one thing to have an inner squad scrimmage. It's another thing to, you know, see what a player is like in a live game action, uh, you know, going against an opponent. Well, they do have these 16 player practice squads though. So it's yes. not like they had to make, you know, if, if you had to make a bunch of hard cuts in a previous season, like now you can make those cuts, but still have the players stick around. And so is that a compromise? Like, you know, obviously with preseason games, there's a heightened risk of injury. Um, players don't like the fact that they're being forced to take these extra hits in games that aren't really meaningful and fans aren't, aren't losing anything. Like these games are garbage to watch. Yeah. But don't forget, this is also a bargaining chip in CBA talks. The, the league is going to have the right to go to 17 games uh, from, from 16. 
in the 2021 season, and the expectation is that the number of preseason games will be cut to three from four. Coaches know these are useless. The last preseason game, the starters don't play. The 53-man rosters have already largely been set. Um, I would expect this to be cut to two in the very in a in the very short in a very short time, and I think that that teams will use this summer as uh, a justification for rolling it back. The ownership likes 20 weeks of season ticket revenue, you know, right. I, I, that, that, and that's the other factor in this for them. Right, because they just roll these into packages. Right. This is not an optional thing. You buy season tickets, you have to buy these dog games. Right. So they're still looking at 20 weeks of that revenue that they would want to hold on to in some way. So I think to Josh's point, though, it could be that this is a compromise with the expanded practice squads, the allowance for veteran, you know, additional veteran players like, a you know, Josh McCown to kind of be on the practice squad. Uh, which you know wouldn't have been allowed in the past. That kind of thing could help. Uh, we'll have to see, though. You know, we'll have to see how these games go in the first few weeks. It's been in past seasons, even with a four-week preseason. You know, the first couple of weeks of the regular season were, 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 were could be kind of sloppy, and so I, you know I would expect to see some of that uh, certainly in the first month of the year this year as well. Six teams are so far planning to have some fans in the stadium. And I was looking at a chart that showed that the number of fans ranged from like 6% of capacity to 25% capacity. And then there was an asterisk next to the Dallas Cowboys because Jerry Jones, you know, you'll probably want to get like 80, 90% into the stadium because Jerry Jones. Sports have done, you know, well compared to society in restarting professional sports. And the risk I see with the NFL is that owners may not pull in the same direction. And this business about who can go to stadiums, and some of that has to do with local regulations, I think is going to become one of the wedges that we see as the season gets going. Does that make sense, Dom? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, what is the what what capacity will Texas allow and Jerry Jones will take advantage of it? Whereas I think the Texans are at least early on are not allowing any fans at their games, um, you know, and they play in the same state. That will be something that's going to play out in different ways. I'm not sure how much of an advantage it gives to teams, though, because, you know, if it's, we're talking about a 25 percent capacity in a giant stadium with teams allowed to to plug in some some crowd noise up to 70 or 75 decibels. You know, it may not give too much of an advantage to teams, but if Jerry Jones wants to stick 80% capacity in his stadium, that that could be a big factor that that favors the Cowboys. There's going to be uh, messages in, in zones. It takes all of us and end racism. <laughs> um, the end racism message will end racism. That's my that's my prediction for <laughs> for this this season. What are we going to see when we watch these games this week? Besides what's what's on the end zone, what do we know about? protest plans what have we heard about what the players will be saying and and wearing and how roger goodell and and owners are going to react i think players and and even some coaches will be protesting bill o'brien has said that that he plans to do it he wants to go along with and that's opening night too right and they play thursday night um kenny stills you know is with the texans he's been very outspoken on this as well uh you know so i but it I don't. I don't know that we can say where it's going to go. I, I listened to the conversation you guys had with Joel Anderson a few weeks back, you know, and that just in the last two weeks, it's it's dip, it's difficult to predict what NFL players may do given what the NBA players had done a couple of weeks ago. So I imagine we'll see something. The the league has said it's not going to to intervene, but again, you know, Jerry Jones is a wild card in in a circumstance like that. 
because he's already trying to to compromise and, and co-opt the possibility of protests. So I, I think, we, you know, no one can really say for sure what's going to happen at this point. And the owner of the Giants, John Mara, also stuck his sort of stepped in it by saying, well, my personal preference would be that they don't protest at all and don't take a knee. I think that the most telling question is going to be what owners do, obviously. Um, Teams, some teams have been pretty forthcoming already, issuing really strong statements and and initiating uh, uh, concrete plans in certain cities, Baltimore, the Houston Texans, uh, the Minnesota Vikings uh, were to start their $5 million initiative uh, for various social justice movements in Minnesota just on, on Tuesday. The owners, though, are a bunch of people that have donated to Trump. And right. these, it's not as if they've all been converted to the cause of Black Lives Matter. And how much of that tension is going to manifest, I think, is going to be dramatic. And will the players be willing to do an NBA-style um, initiative, I think, is also going to be really, really telling. This is not a sport where collective action has been possible. Yeah. And, and you know, and to what extent will certain owners attempt to co-opt or, or, or whitewash this or use end racism as, as kind of a, a branding opportunity for the, their teams just to give the appearance that they're doing something about this when they are people who have access to politicians and people who can make you know, inst- or institute uh, certain changes. Will they do any of that, or will it just be, you know, a lot of easy branding for the league at this point? That's the fascinating question to me as this plays out. So Eric Trump tweeted on Monday: "Football is officially dead. So much for America's sport. Goodbye NFL. I'm gone." <laughs> this was after, uh, in in response to a story in the Washington Examiner about how a Cowboys player said that team officials had given the team the green light to protest during the anthem. So I don't say any of this to, you know, imply that what Eric Trump is is saying matters uh, in any way. But the Trump administration has been ramping up kind of racist rhetoric in the last few weeks. And with the election in uh, a couple of months, they are going to use the NFL to try to create a wedge issue um, to create, to stoke this culture war. We've seen it in the past, and I think it's going to be incredibly intense. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on these owners. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Roger Goodell. And I I think in turn, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the player. So what happens in week one might not end up being what happens in week two. It might There might be pressure to have the protest end. There might be more protests because of the attempt to clamp down on them. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Given how things played out three years ago when Trump first attempted to make this an issue and there were mass protests and the league reacted the way it did, you know, by instituting an anthem policy that the the union pushed back against with a grievance, uh, you know, and now all of the things Goodell has said this summer I'd have a hard time seeing how he's going to be able to go back on that if it were to get to that point and for the players to want to put up with it. That could be a galvanizing moment for the players, perhaps, if if Goodell tries to do an about face as the heat gets hotter, you know, if we get closer to the election with this. You wrote a piece for the score, Dom, the basic message of which is don't trust Roger Goodell. The players are hearing these things he's saying. I should have listened to Cap earlier. Black lives do matter. Um, I support their right to protest. But when push comes to shove, 
this is going to be a, you know, I don't know if it's a test for Goodell, but it could be his job on the line. He is employed by the 32 owners. He's not there to say the right things that fans or a subset of fans want to hear. Yeah. And, you know, it was an interesting around that time, Al- Albert Breer reported that the the, the league and the PA had done a focus group study of some sort that indicated that the Trump tweets were just that. They were the Trump tweets. They would stoke things on the Internet, but they would disappear within a, within a few days. And so, you know, that may have been why they were willing to stand down when the, after the players filed their grievance. But as Josh mentioned, now we're in an election season. And so what will that mean? I mean, all of these uncertainties kind of, uh, you know, are going to come bubbling to the surface here in the next month or two. So on the fields, Cam Newton has been named the starter for the Patriots and Bill Belichick said some like incredibly nice and complimentary <laughs> things about him. Um, and Tom Brady is obviously going to be the starter in Tampa. Like this is going to be the, the kind of parallel stories that I, I think are going to get the most national interest this season. Brady and the Bucks are playing the, the Saints in, in week one. Like what are going to be some kind of things that we should look out for with those franchises. Like, obviously, the Patriots are not going to be running the same offense with Cam that they did with with Brady, and the Bucks are kind of people's, you know, pick to make the Super Bowl or win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think with, with Cam and, the, and the, the Patriots, you know, his health is obviously one thing. Um, you know, he, he, he has dealt with a number of injuries. It's why the Patriots were able to get him on the cheap, and he had lingered on the market for as long as he did. But the Patriots also had eight players opt out, you know, including, you know, two of their best defensive starters. The Patriots issue is is probably more of what's around Cam, because one of the issues Brady had was the lack of talent with his receiving core there as well. So just the Patriots roster as a whole is not, you know, the the deep unit we've we've come to expect from them. So that, I think that's the biggest thing to watch in New England with Brady in the box. He's actually got a lot of talent around him on offense. They've got a pretty good defense. I, I just wonder how. You know, he's been so used to a particular system and a way of doing things and a a way of responding to a kind of adversity. If things begin to go off the rails or it's a bad situation, can they bounce back where he doesn't have the the support and the infrastructure that he had in New England? But because, you know, he certainly does have a lot of talent around him on that offense. And I I think that defense retained a bunch of guys. And they added uh, Antoine Winfield Jr., uh, you know, to kind of shore up the back of their secondary. So they've, they've added... It's a very good roster, very good coaching staff down there, but a different environment for Brady, which is something he has not had to deal with for 20 years. Yeah, quarterback news is going to be front and center. The the two big contracts that were awarded in the offseason, Patrick Mahomes of the Chiefs, $450 million over 10 years. Of course, that's paper money. And Deshaun Watson, $156 million over four years, also paper money. Um, but they are indicative on, on, a, on a per year basis for guaranteed money. They are the number one and number two highest paid players in the NFL and, of course, in the history of the NFL. Yeah. And, uh, you know, both deals are they're different in a certain way. In, in, they're different in the fact that, uh, you know, Mahomes went for the longer deal where he's not going to get the opportunity to retest the market four or five years down the road in the way that, that Deshaun Watson will and the way that both deals are structured, you know, it's sort of the unique leverage quarterbacks have where there, there are these kind of rolling guarantees in place that are pretty much going to ensure they're going to get most of that money in the, the early portion of that deal, even if they three, four years out, even if their performance begins to slip or a severe injury were to hit them. You know, you'd almost like to see 
a Kirk Cousins kind of situation where players of that caliber insist on fully guaranteed deals in the hope that maybe that would trickle down to other positions. But instead, what we are seeing is now that we're getting $20 million tackles and $20 million edge rushers, the quarterbacks are raising the bar for the kind of money and the kind of structures that other players can get. But there's still other, plenty of other positions that aren't uh, benefiting from that, like running backs and even tight ends. Dom Cosentino writes about the National Football League for The Score. Dom, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs. And our guest Noah Rubin mentioned this kind of in passing. And I also mentioned it in a blog post I wrote over the weekend. But one of the more notorious tennis disqualifications came in 2012 when a player from Argentina, David Nalbandian, um, was at uh, a grass court tournament in England in 2012. Uh, He was in the final of this tournament, actually, at Queens, playing Marin He was leading this match and got mad, kicked an advertising panel that was only a few inches in front of a lines person, the advertising panel um, rammed into this person's shin, which then started bleeding. This was not one of these edge cases, Stefan, where it's like, well, did he really, did he flick it? Did he really? Yeah, this was an immediate uh, DQ here. After the match, Nalbanian said, sometimes I make a mistake I agree with. Okay. It's a tough moment to end a final like that, but sometimes we feel so much pressure from the ATP playing so many tournaments. Today, I've made a mistake. Sometimes I agree, and I do, but everyone makes mistakes. I don't feel it had to end like that, especially in a final. There are a lot of rules, and sometimes they don't do anything. The rule book is very big, and I can tell you the ATP do a lot to the players, and nothing happens. Hmm. Interesting uh, interesting perspective there. I had actually erroneously put in my post, Stefan, that Nalbandian kicked the lines person, but I was corrected by a big Nalbandian fan on Twitter. So here's your chance to apologize to Nalbandian. I apologize. I screwed up. He kicked the sign that then ran into the the person's shin, which started bleeding copiously. Now, Bandian beat Roger Federer five straight times. We should we shouldn't only focus on the negative things. Mm-hmm. A long and and successful career when he wasn't uh, kicking signage. Stefan, what is your David Nalbandian? Well, until the hubbub over Novak Djokovic getting defaulted, one of the crazier stories at the U.S. Open was the exit of my lanky, boyish, peak Bjorn Borg, quaffed patrioti Stefanos Tsitsipas. You may have missed it, though, because the fourth-seeded Greek's third-round loss to Borna Cioric ended 70 minutes after midnight on Saturday. Zito Elas and all that, but I went to bed with Tsitsipas ahead two sets to one and leading in the fourth. Things were already a little weird. At one point, Tsitsipas screamed at his father, who's also his coach, you don't know! And then things got nuts. Tsitsipas went up 5-1 in the fourth. Chorich held serve to make it 5-2, broke Tsitsipas for 5-3, saved two match points, 
to make it 5-4, and then serving at 40-love, Tsitsipas lost three more match points. He'd blow one more, six and all, lose the set 7-5, and then lose a fifth set tiebreaker. The match took four hours and 39 minutes. So it ended at 1.10 a.m. It's just so, so sad, ESPN's Cliff Drysdale said as the players walked to the net. Sad, I think, mostly because no fans were there to witness it, but also maybe in a show of empathy to Tsitsipas. The Greek tapped rackets with Chorich, took off his sweaty shirt, packed his bag, and walked bare-chested into the locker room, where the very first thing that he must have done, because it happened at 1.14, was to pull out his phone, open up Twitter, and write, Greek voice, this is probably the saddest and funniest at the same time thing that has ever happened in my career. Tsitsipas's reputation as a next-gen social media star already was well-established. He's a shooter of gauzy photos and saccharine videos and a tweeter and Instagrammer of utterly earnest and sentimental self-help book thoughts. Are there any golden untold secrets in life? He wrote in July. As it turns out, there were 10. Number three, know when your sad season is over and you just need to stand up and dance. Seven, Build the brand that is you. Nine, refresh yourself before you wreck yourself. This one didn't make the top 10, but he tweeted it a couple of weeks ago after singing karaoke with some other players. Do something that scares you every single day. Last year, Stefanos tweeted this classic. I like me better naked. When you put clothes on, you immediately put a character on. Clothes are adjectives. They are indicators. When you don't have any clothes on, it's just you, raw, and you can't hide. In July, while on vacation in Mykonos, hashtag Mykonos Wolfpack, he posted an Adidas promo video that he's in. One more year of training hard, of sacrificing time with friends and family, of focusing on one single goal, one more hasn't stopped me before, and it's not going to stop me now. So back to this is probably the saddest and funniest at the same time thing that has ever happened in my career. I feel like neither Tsitsipas nor his social media team had the time to craft that one, so it had to be him. Tsitsipas unplugged. And it was exactly true. I mean, on the one hand, he gagged. On the other, what happened was absurd, and he wasn't going to flog himself over it. Totally naked self-awareness. I like me better naked. Tsitsipas's fans were right there with him, especially the Greek ones. None of the Greeks were screaming choker or loser in his replies that a real champion needs to learn to close him out. In fact, they were as sweet and innocent as Tsitsipas himself. Steph... That was the Greek fan of Tsitsipas. Steph, the journey has meaning, every obstacle for the better. Lisa G said, We're up all night for you, always after a loss. The biggest, most amazing wins come. Angie Macris wrote that. My doll, I'm crying. It wasn't your day. It doesn't matter because Roland Garros is coming. One more because I'm enjoying speaking some Greek here. Vivi 877 wrote, 
It doesn't matter, my strong man. Loser win. Greece is with you, Stefanos. Onward. The loss did not, in fact, deter the Palikari's sense of self or sense of humor after the USTA posted a video of someone making a pancake that looks like him that was earlier in the tournament. Tsitsipas retweeted it on Saturday after his loss. I knew I was a pancake after all. Then he made his way into Manhattan, posted a video of a New Yorker hitting off of a wall, found a guy who plays better than me. And then on Sunday, there he was, back in Manhattan, holding a couple of Frankfurters. Is there anything more American than the humble hot dog? And finally, on Monday, a slow-mo video of our Greek hero jumping and touching a no-parking sign, reaching new heights, Tsitsipas wrote. Tsitsipas, Giannis, this is a golden age, Josh, for Greek athletes. Not to mention Maria Sakari, Serena Williams's opponent in the fourth round. Yeah, another sad loss. It's been a golden age for Greek athletes, but this week, it's been a golden age for Greek athletes losing, too. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.